Welcome everybody to the Chinchilla Pickin' Podcast. It is September the 3rd, 2023, 2.49 p.m. As always, we hope to be entertaining, educational, and uplifting because we want everyone to make money. My name is David Underwood, and once again, without fail, I am joined by Brandon Beaver. Brandon, how are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I'm enjoying this. It's Labor Day tomorrow. The markets are closed tomorrow. We always love these holidays when the markets are closed. No, we don't. We want to be trading and actively investing. But um, nonetheless, it's a good holiday. It's a recognition of the American worker. Take a day off. Relax if you can. A lot of workers can't relax, can't take a day off. Um, so um, please, please do if you can. Uh, grill out, go for a run, do whatever you do. That's what I say. I will, Enjoy. I will be working for four hours tomorrow. 8 a.m. to 12, and then it's over. I will not be working, so uh, I will be thinking of you as I don't work and I sleep in. So here's here's the catch to that, though. Um, my employer has said, "Hey, if you if you um, if if you volunteer to work on Labor Day for only four hours, we'll give you a full eight hour day, which our days are never eight hours, but we'll give you eight hours of." Um, of uh pto time and, and return so i'm gonna work four hour four hours for eight hours of pto so worth it boom boom that's what we like to hear man that's easy. see and that's using the uh capitalism and that uh free enterprise market to its best you're incentivizing employees to make choices and you're allowing them to make choices based off how they feel and what they want yep. um and that should be how it is um but nonetheless here we are man here we are uh it's Hot, then cool, then hot again. Uh, United States heating back up, man. Heating back up. Typical Ohio weather. Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. All right. Well, college football season and my Huskers are already 0-1. Yes, that's right. I am a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. Uh, that's because I went to high school in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I'm not going to say when, but uh, it's when the Huskers were winning. And uh, that's how old I am. And... Uh, <laughs> Now I am a, a fan for life, and right now we're 0-1. Uh, it's tough, tough. At least I'm not a Cowboys fan. All right, let's move oh, on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good one. Throw that right in there. Just throw me right <laughs> under the bus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> rules, rules, rules. Everybody getting those rules. Brandon and I get together five to ten minutes before the show, and we tell each other what we're going to talk about. You actually hear the live discussion, the back and forth, the bicker, the banter right here on the show. Uh, and uh, tonight, uh, Brandon's going to head it off. So I give the mic over to the Baron of Bonds, Brandon Beaver. So last week, we talked about the leading economic index. Um, and just to brief, you know, not, not to go back and talk about it all over again, just to summarize, it's back tested to 1959. There's been numerous instances where year over uh, year growth in the LEI turned modestly negative by modest uh we're talking about from uh 0.1% to 3.9%. However, it seems as if 4% is kind of where the line in that sand is whereas if, if you cross into uh over 4% decline year over year, the economy is always eventually falling into a recession, keyword eventually. One of the inputs in the LEI is M2 M2 is a measure of, of, of money. Okay. So um, one of the uh, inputs there, you're looking at money supply metrics. First of all, 
you want to pay close attention to M1 and M2. M1 accounts for cash, coins, and such in circulation and uh, deposits with an individual's checking account. M2 factors in everything from M1, but then adds in money market accounts, savings accounts, certificate of deposits below $100,000. Basically, M1 is um, mostly liquid right now. Generally, if you're looking at M2, the total uh, money supply, this is generally increasing over the long run. Uh, but when we talked about this, uh, we mentioned last week that uh, ReVenture Consulting CEO Nick Gorelli posted on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, that M2 money supply growth and contraction dating back to 1870 using data supplied by the St. Louis Federal Reserve and the U.S. Census Bureau. He shows that M2 is to, has been contracting month over month for quite a long time now and year over year. Year over year, this has only happened four times in the last 150 years, each time with depression and double-digit unemployment following. So over the past 153 years, when M2 has declined by at least 2% year on a year-over-year -year basis, uh, we're looking at the 1870s, 1893, 1921, 1931 through 1933 and now in 2023. So this is a lot the first time this has happened since the Great Depression. Um, and generally these instances resulted in well depression, panic, uh, recession, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Now we're in 2023, so we have no idea what the future holds. But the reason why this is important and it's a reason to look at First of all, the historical instances of recessions and depressions that come afterwards. Second of all, it's the signal and the expectations that this indicator um, brings about. When decline in M2 starts happening, people start to expect. And, and by the way, if you're, if you're looking at a classical economic definition, then we're already in a deflationary period because classical economics tells you that inflation is an increase in the money supply. And that price inflation is the result of inflation. So everybody, when they're talking about inflation, they're talking about the prices they're seeing at the grocery store. But according to classical economics, that's just a symptom or a result of what inflation actually is, which is the increase in the monetary supply. Deflation is the same thing. It's a contraction in monetary supply and Price deflation is a symptom of that where prices start to slow down their growth or start to uh, actually like regular economists would just tell you that price deflation is a decrease in prices year over year, month over month. The signal that this sends is that the value of the dollar is going to start to increase and that people will have less money to spend in the short, medium or long term. So what winds up happening is that businesses start to um, they start to decrease their spending. They start to stack the piles of cash because they know the purchasing power of that cash will grow over time when deflation when we're in a deflationary period. So it's beneficial to them to stack that cash and to not spend it so much. On the other hand, and Dave, I'll get to you in just a few minutes here. Uh, on the other hand, you've got interest rates rising, right? So the cost of capital, the cost of lending is going up, or the cost of borrowing, actually. The cost of borrowing is going way up. So the result of that, too, is that businesses not only are they stacking their cash because they believe that the value of that dollar is going to continue to rise, but 
they're stacking their cash because the cost of getting more money from the bank is going up. Uh, so they're they're starting to really look at you know what they're spending their money on and pulling it back. We haven't seen this yet hit the labor market too much. Um, unemployment still pretty good. We haven't hit seen it hit wages all that much. That's still pretty good. But I'm thinking that is yet to come. Go ahead, Dave. So much that I wanted to say. I, I needed to start making notes of what points I wanted to make. Um, Thank you for so, coming to my TED Talk, and I expect a book <laughs> report. Yeah. First, so first, man, first, companies have already started stacking cash. We reported on this in the first quarter of this year. They were yeah. expecting a slowdown in the economy. That's what they were already doing, right? Second, the jobs have already been getting cut early in the first half of the year. Right now, they're actually, uh, if you read the last jobs report and looked at the small numbers and the details, more people joined the workforce now. So people are coming off the sidelines and actually joining the active workforce. A million more people joined this last go around than uh, previously before. So that's going to decrease the amount of jobs that are available. So we're already seeing that. Um, so, uh, um, the, some of the things you're talking about, I believe we already saw six to nine months, uh, six, nine months ago, other things, I think we're seeing it right now, um, as far as what you're saying is going to happen. So yes, I agree. And, but like, here's the thing that, that, uh, as far as this, uh, indicator, um, there's a lot of other people right now that are going on talking heads on TV right now, like Kevin O'Leary and then a few other ones I've seen on Bloomberg and CNBC recently saying that we are going to have a tough time, but it's going to be due to the high credit card debt and the student loan repayments. And that's what's going to put us over into a recession. Yeah, I mean, that's pro that's going to be a part of it for sure. Uh, what so the uh, total debt for the Americans right now, uh, total household debt altogether is $17 trillion. Credit card debt just hit $1 trillion, a record. And that's nothing to uh, nothing to turn your head away from. It's something that definitely needs to be paid attention to for sure. And it's a symptom of, of inflation. Pricing. Yeah, and it so. you're right. It is something we've talked about on this show a lot. So I'm glad Kevin O'Leary is listening and finally repeating what we've been saying for months. That that is going to I've been saying, look, I'm a bull on the economy unless they once they start the student loan repayments, I'm concerned about how that's going to affect the economy. I've always I've mentioned that before. I've also mentioned I'm a bull on the economy unless we start seeing like the Apple credit card fall and you see defaults in that, which we started to. But then they got backstop because Apple has a ton of cash to backstop it. So it got back backstopped and Goldman Sachs just kind of pulled out some of their investment in there. But uh yeah, I've, I've been a bull except for I've been watching those two things. Those are my concerns, and I'm glad now that it's starting to be in voice in other places. So all these things, uh, increasing uh, credit card debt, um, you know, increasing prices still right now, although the increase in prices is slowing down due to M2 declining. Um, that's really the correlation that should be looked at. Um, well, here's my biggest concern is the company. Let's, let's, let's take Target right now, right? Target right now is suffering, right? Mm -hmm. They do most of the business of uh, uh, people in their 20s earlier, earlier in life um, is a big demographic target group of them. That's where they like to hit the the middle to lower class 20s and, and really get in uh, get in that area. Now, here's the problem is if that group start has to make uh, loan payments again, there goes their discretionary income and target that company that's already hurting is going to be hurting more. 
yeah. and that's where I'll be. That's where I'll be concerned about retailers. And I confirm my position again. Again, I'm going to repeat myself. I am staying away from the retail sector because I'm worried about that kind of thing. How many of these people do you think are actually going to start paying back their student loans? So, I'm because- sure there's. I'm sure there's going to be some forgiveness or some somebody's going to be able to work their way around the system. But I believe at least fifty percent of them are going to have to start making payments. I mean, barely it barely affects your credit report compared to like credit card debt and stuff like that, which like negatively impacts it greatly. If you don't pay those student loans, it doesn't really touch you all that much. They, when when you're going to buy a house, a bank um, will rank that right with uh, with healthcare and 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 um, hospital debts and stuff like. They don't care about it as much. So I, I don't see the incentive to even pay it back which that's going to have a completely negative effect in a different way, um, you know, on any private banks that may have been a middleman on those loans. But um, yeah, I don't even know if it'll be 50%, maybe 40. I It's it's going to have a negative effect on U.S. retailers. Yeah, it will, for sure. And, and they've been calling that out. Uh, it's one of the things that the CEOs over the past week have actually mentioned as a big headwind. Right. And so as far as back to the indicator you're talking about, you know, there's a lot of other factors that I see that would that could cause that. But I'm watching them and I'm watching the headlines to make sure that, you know, none of those have been reported yet, because until then, I think we have a strong market right now until then, because the AI is just pushing the market higher. All this good AI news. Is it, though, is it pushing investments higher? Or yeah, that's it, what I'm talking about. And stock like, market trading. That's, that's fine, but is it really pushing spending higher in the real market? In that's- certain very specific sectors. Like oh. uh, if you're buying chips from Nvidia, you're buying more chips. Yeah. So, so very specific sectors, yes. Okay. So this this spending um, decrease uh, on discretionary goods and stuff that's hurting certain retailers, Dollar General, for example, reporting slowing sales uh, in the recently ended quarter. Dollar General's unsold goods, inventory of unsold goods is piling up. And Dollar Tree, uh, you look at Dollar Tree, their gross margin falling more than two percentage points uh, from the same quarter just last year. Dollar General well, wasn't that the story last year? I don't mean to interrupt you, but wasn't that the story that the retailers gave us in report in second quarter earnings of last year? They all came on and all their earnings calls. They said, "Hey, we have an oversupply of inventory. We have an oversupply of inventory, and we need to cut, cut, cut." Or is is Dollar Tree a year behind here on this trend, or what? Did they not no, get their act together like everybody still, else did? It's still the same trends for them. And Dollar Tree is is a little bit different amongst these other retailers. Dollar General. Uh, generally over the past 20, 25 years has actually had really good management. Dollar Tree has had their own problems separate from the economic headwinds that we have right now, just mostly poor management. Um, So they're the weakest link here, if you ask me. Uh, And the fact that they're still having problems with the unsold inventory, they still have the same story that they have to face this year that a lot of retailers did last year. And that's, hey, let's use this holiday season for markdowns to try to get rid of the stuff. The problem is, is that Dollar Tree's gross margin, I think, is like two to three percent net margin. I mean, two to three percent. So it'll be interesting to see what this holiday season does to them. If they're having to mark down all of these goods, they're probably going to go negative. 
it's it's going to be a, a what another bad holiday season. So I remember last year, last holiday season, everybody was saying good, 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 all the way up until December. They were saying, "Oh, it's going to be great, it's great, 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 great." Then it was quiet, and then January they said bad numbers. Yeah, but the after they already ran up the market, pushed up the stock prices, and then the people that knew better sold, got out, and everybody else is left with losses. Yep. And I, I think that was a really shady thing to do by uh, some of the big investment bank firms, but they did it knowingly did it. And I'm going to accuse them of that on the show here, but they did it and they knowingly did it. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm worried that that's what's going to happen again this year. It was obvious what kind of market cycle, where we were in the market cycle and, and, and all that, at least to us. And it had to have been to them too. Well, I mean, we know Kevin O'Leary and Warren Buffett listen to us, but I don't know about the rest exactly. of them. All right. So both uh, Dollar Tree and Dollar General, they both said that their customers are spending more on food and other essentials. This also hurts their profit margins because these are less profitable for stores than discretionary things. Um, the companies are also grappling with higher labor, labor costs. Uh, and then you see Five Below earlier this week. They're also cutting their full-year profit outlook, and they cite, no surprise here, we talked about this last week, challenges with shrink or theft, whatever you want to call it. Um, Macy's- it's, the, it's the new oversupply. It's the new, I'm oversupplied. And then the year before, it was Ukraine. Now it's theft. Yeah. Every so, year, uh, it's something else. Macy's also, with them reporting declining sales in June, they warned that shoppers are late on their credit card payments. And they said that they expect pressures um, from the consumers to uh, continue through the balance of the year. Uh, and this was the Macy's chief executive, Jeff Gannett. He also added that international tourism has yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. I'll be honest with you, though. Macy's honest. They, they often blame tourism for declining sales and i just don't understand it there's got to be a reason because this is kind of a continuing theme with them on earnings that disappoint over the past like 10 years it's all oh, our international co customers aren't there i don't really see people touring the maybe the new york location of macy's but i don't really see tourism having such a huge effect on macy's earnings i don't do you do you understand that dave because i quite no, honestly man. i don't I don't fly to San Diego, Miami, and to want to go shop at Macy's. All right. Oh, right. When I go places, it's it's to visit and see things and be uh get into the local culture there. I'm not I'm not about shopping at Macy's. Yeah, I don't get that either. But uh they said that we expect pressures of the consumer to be under to continue through the balance of the year. So sales at Macy's down eight percent to five billion dollars from a year um, earlier, and the company's swinging to a net loss in the earnings period. Um, this kind of Macy's kind of goes right into that, into the same category as Dollar Tree for me. I think it's just been poor management for the past 12 years. They tried to get ahead of the online thing, um, with the multi-channel retail environment is what they were calling it before it became omni-channel. Um, and, and they just failed at it. Uh, I was an investor at Macy's back in 2013 when they launched, uh, their campaign to go, um, you know, to focus online and it failed. I, and honestly, I can't really pinpoint why it failed, but it did. It just didn't the, work. The, the customer service has gone from some of these department stores. So I shop at Nordstrom's and it wasn't too long ago where you go to Nordstrom's and you would get stellar service. And that's what you're paying the money for. You know, they would 
uh, tailor your items there. You know, you would have fit-ins there. People would work with you and find your guide. Now it's, it's, it's hard because only uh, uh, like 20% of the staff feels like they're from that era. And then the rest of the staff feels like uh, you're bothering me. I'm at work. I'm trying to, why are you bothering me? And it's like, they've lost that customer service and, you know, you want to keep that aspect at, at these higher end retailers because that's what we're looking for. Now, if you don't want to be called a higher end re- retailer anymore, then that's fine. Then change your change how you structure your brand. But, you know, I, I think, think that's they, what's losing. And the other thing with Macy's, I think that they failed to shift their demographics. Um, going online, they should have had more of a, a focus on the younger customers. And they never really shifted into the younger demographic. It's still, you know, a lot of like, and I'm not trying to be incendiary when I say this, but the older generation that's still shopping at Macy's and and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think the younger crowd ever caught on. And if you're looking at online retail sales, your demographics are going to be the younger shoppers, not the people that are, you know, over the age of 60 or 70. Gotcha. Uh, All right. Moving on. Okay. But there are two sides to the retail coin. There's always trends. Every this is why I love the retail sector so much. It's very interesting to see who's uh who's doing well and who's not. So Walmart, the e-commerce retailer and largest gross gro- grocery seller, that's what we're calling it now because they are. They're big into e-commerce. Um reported uh pretty good earnings, and so did Amazon, so did TJ Maxx. Uh, and Home Goods, uh, the TJ Maxx-owned store, uh, posting strong sales and strong profits. Walmart's U.S. comparable sales uh, from stores and digital channels operating for at least 12 months rose 6.4%. Um, shoppers continuing to cook more at home and spending cautiously is what they said. So a uh, big increase for uh, the food items out of Walmart. And uh, Walmart says that consumers are facing pressure on their budgets from rising energy prices, the return of federal student loan payments, higher borrowing costs and drawdowns and savings. Um, But they're they're still overperforming here, beating analysts uh, growth and uh, expectations and uh, beating their own expectations. Big lots also. And I just got a little notification here. It's covering my screen. So hold on. Okay. Big lots. Um, also said this week that it saw a pickup in demand for its low price goods as more consumers adjusted their spending habits to financial stress. Uh, their CEO said that our core lower income customer remains under significant pressure and has limited capacity for higher ticket discretionary purchases. So kind of the same theme here with these stores, but their sales continuing to grow. Their profits are continuing to grow. Amazon's earnings going up as well. Walmart said for its full year, its earnings per share uh, expectation of $6.36 to $6.46 is now up compared to what they had originally estimated, saying that they were going to have a year-over-year earnings per share of $6.10 to $6.20. So they're raising their expectations here, um, and net sales growing 4% to 4.5%. And they had initially estimated 3.5% growth. So they're beating their own expectations. They're still doing really well in the face of all these headwinds. Uh, I see some trends in this, Dave. What are you What are you looking at? What are you thinking? Oh, thank you. I thought you were just going to keep going until we closed out the show, man. Listen, Walmart, thank you. Because uh, I've been beating up 
and getting things wrong the last few weeks. This at least makes me feel like I, I know what I'm talking about sometimes. Walmart is the one I keep getting right, all right? I, I don't like the retail sector, but I keep saying that if I was going to buy any, it would be Walmart, right? Walmart has the best – it's their pricing strategy. They're able to eke out profits even even in, in, in the high inflation times. Brandon, you talked about this. I think it was, what, a year and a half ago we talked about high inflation and which companies you would look for when you're buying high, uh, during high inflation. And uh, we went through that period of really high inflation – we're starting to uh, come back down. Um, doesn't mean inflation's uh, the 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 what's hurting our pocketbooks has come back down, but the uh, how fast inflation is growing is coming back down. And Walmart's still a good play. People need to save money. They need to start paying off this credit card debt. They know student loans is coming up. They they're going to be shopping at these at Walmart in order to save a buck or two, and that's why Walmart's uh, is going to be a good play right now. The problem with with Walmart being uh, still continuing to grow during these times tells me uh, uh, makes me worry more about my bullish outlook on the economy than anything else. Brandon, seventy percent of their customers uh, now make a hundred thousand dollars or more a year, and and I don't think that's because the Walmart base has increased their salaries that much. I think it's because uh, the base of uh, Walmart has changed. Mostly that the people who are making a hundred thousand dollars or more a year that used to shop at the higher end uh, are saying, "Hey, even we can't afford this higher end stuff now. We got to go to Walmart, right?" So, um, and then you know, but when you when we're talking about you know price sensitive shoppers here going to Walmart, but then you have to think like, okay, then what's the deal with Dollar General and Dollar Tree? Walmart has groceries, and they have a lot more selection of groceries. It's the grocery business is what's pushing Walmart. Um, you have pharmacies also located in Walmart. You have uh, uh, a garden outdoor supplies at Walmart. Uh, during the holidays, you have the whole big, huge holiday section. Like it's a one-stop shop. It has all these things available for people. Um, I know that the Walmart close to me, I've gone to it recently for various items. Um, and it, you know, it it's when, when I go in it, when I go in there, it's, it, it's a hodgepodge of people. Yeah. It really is. It's that. And then where's the e-commerce presence for five below Dollar Tree and Dollar General? Not really there. Yeah. So the fact that you have more Dollar Generals inside the United States than you do McDonald's, I think, is the statistic that's on that. I believe that's right. Uh, and Dollar Tree is probably pretty close to that as well. doesn't really matter at this point in time. You have to be cheap and you have to be convenient. Walmart is both Dollar Tree and Dollar General and Five Below are just cheap. They are not convenient. There you go. Yep. And the interesting thing about Amazon's uh, earnings here, um, they're actually their cloud computing business um, and AWS saw some of its slowest growth on record. Meanwhile, the retail Amazon is doing better. Um, and and they just said that it's the same thing that we were just talking about. Every company in the world is trying trying to save as much money as they can. That's what the CEO said. That it's that, and it's also the fact that AWS a few years back got very political, and they started cutting services to certain people because they're like, no, we're not going to service you anymore. Hey, your contracts have come up. We disagree with you. We disagree with this. Hey, hey, we're not going to do this. And they started telling people, telling companies what and how to do things. And so then uh, 
all of a sudden out of nowhere, there became all these independent web services companies sprouting up, trying to chip away at Amazon's business because Amazon started dictating to companies what they can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. All right, Brandon, is it uh, my turn to take over? It is. All right. The Baron of Bonds is passing the baton. All right. I love it. <laughs> All right, what we're going to start here is we're going to start with this China-U.S. and this going back and forth. So there is a United States Commerce Secretary, and uh, her name is uh, Gina Raimondo. Uh, I believe her is her pronouns. Uh, if not, they can uh, correct me. Um, warned uh, They warned China interview broadcast on Sunday that the patience of U.S. businesses was wearing thin. Right. So there, it goes on to this article. This article was came across Reuters. Uh, it doesn't have a, a known author behind it. Kind of weird in that regard. But um, and it's because they're mainly stating facts from the CBS face the nation that how she was uh, very hard on China when she went to go do her visit with China. Uh, she said her phone was her emails were hacked ahead of time. She called them out for that, saying, how how can I build trust with you? When uh, you you were hacking our emails, China suggested it wasn't intentional, meaning they knew about it and it was them, but it wasn't intentional. I, I don't know why you would admit that, but hey. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there's no question in this article, it goes on to say there's no question that China's economy is slowing down. And certainly they're having a real significant challenges in the real estate sector, which we're going to get to here in a minute. But... Uh, as they've closed down, they become more arbitrary in the ways they administer regulations, right? So this is the problem with China right now is the regulations. We saw it last year of Alibaba and the fight with Alibaba and them and Jack Maul disappeared for like two months. Everybody thought he was like dead or in jail. Um, and then we saw it with Didi when Didi tried to go public without going through uh, Beijing first. Uh, and they went straight to the NYSE. That caused problems. Didi had to pull back out. Didi got punished. Um, and now uh, Didi is allowed to operate again and, and have their stocks. But now it's been beaten up so much, nobody wants to buy it. It's the regulations that are killing them. Uh, but this is strong words from our uh, Commerce Secretary. And Brandon, first thoughts on uh, her strong words for China. I'm surprised this didn't come sooner. <laughs> I mean, like, she's just saying everything that we already knew was happening. It's just happening to her. So I, I'm really surprised more people haven't talked about it. I guess I shouldn't be, though, because there's so much money involved in China for U.S. businesses that they try to tip te- tiptoe around all these issues. But it's got to come to a light, you know, eventually. Right, because, I mean... China has this law and it's a counter espionage law and uh, they just raid U.S. businesses all the time that operate in China and say it's just uh, counter espionage. That's why we're here. And, and and that's one of her biggest points that she made with her China counterparts is you can't keep doing this U.S. businesses. So, you know, what I mean, we're just going to end up pulling out. Yeah. But we want to we want to work with you. We want to be partners with you. She's trying her best to maintain a relationship, even though it's become very hard to maintain one. Governments get very jealous over power and influence, and they were very jealous, I think, in China over Jack Ma's power and influence that he had over the population there. They didn't like that very much. Yeah, I, and I could see that because he was becoming very, very well-known, very popular, like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, and 
he got big very fast to where he made some public comments about the government that probably were not in the best of light. And when you uh, live in, in that type of uh, political atmosphere, it's not very good for you. So as a looking at it from a financial standpoint, if I see in the, a company, a Chinese company and the CEO is making those kind of comments, I'm going to sell that stock. And that's what I would do as an investor. So from a financial investment standpoint, I would be watching the news for those events so that I can know when to sell and when to get out. But here, let's go into this real estate sector, which I said we would get into shortly. We're going to talk currently about Country Garden. That's what we're going to talk about, this specific company in regard to China and the real estate sector. So, Brandon, you've heard of Evergrande, right? And how they defaulted on their loans a couple of years back, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Country Garden, another real estate developer in China with a, going through some tough times. Here's what the article, this is an article through Reuters, and it was written by Ji Yu, Kevin Wong, and Li Gu. Um, my uh, Mandarin's not that good. I only know a few words like Ni Hao and She She and others words, but uh, so I hope my pronunciation was correct. Um, however, they were seeking approval from its creditors to extend maturity on $540 million on onshore private bond. So that vote happened on Friday night. So the extension, the debt extension was approved. So now they can repay over three years instead of meeting their obligations by Saturday. Wait, nothing like waiting to the last minute. But what happens Friday night, if they didn't get approved, they would have had to meet their obligations on Saturday and they probably may not have met them. Um, so China's property sector it roughly accounts for a quarter of the total economy. So this was back in 2021. This is when Evergrande, defaulted and they thought that this was going to ripple effect go ahead 25 percent of china's economy or of like the global china's economy so the chinese economy 25 percent of it is made up by the real estate market right now in china all right so 2021 you had an evergrand crisis where they just defaulted and we you know we thought that was going to be the end and it was going to have huge ripple effects. Well, it didn't have huge ripple effects. You know, it got it got backstopped to a point, and uh, Evergrande is still sputtering on, um, not nearly like what it was before 2021. So uh, Country Garden's financial woes spiraled over the past month. Beijing, in response to this, has cut mortgage rates, and they've also relaxed home purchase restrictions. So right now, when the rest of the world is raising mortgage uh, raising rates, uh, Beijing is currently cutting rates. They're doing opposite of that because they're having trouble with the real estate market, which is a huge part of the economy, like we've we just talked about. What we don't think is going to happen, according to this article, they do not believe that this is going to trickle down to the developers in in time to save them, right? They're worried about the more of the fundamental factors than the actual cost of uh, borrowing or broader debt worries. Um, When you break down the numbers here, uh, country gardens liabilities, they're only 59% of what Evergrande's was, right? However, uh, country garden has 3,103 projects across China. Evergrande only had 800, but Evergrande had bigger projects on bigger scales. Country gardens is more, spread out, if you will, uh, which they have a concern there because of systemic stability if all country gardens all start 
uh, toppling down one after another. Here's my problem. If you want to go ahead and read this article, go ahead and read this article. But my problem with the Chinese real estate market right now is yet another big company is on the verge of default. Um, and yes, they got this this uh, big chunk of their bond uh, re re refigured for three uh, three years of payments rather than paying off Saturday. But I still think that Country Garden may def- will will default. Not may will default. By the end of the year, if not uh, first quarter of next year, I, I think there's just just delays the inevitable there, unless China can get the real estate market to turn around. So China's been a big purveyor in what I call bubble nomics, uh, in their property development sector in particular for over a decade now. Uh, all kinds of perverse incentives and all kinds of different government backstops for these companies to create. Uh, properties and sectors and sometimes even cities uh, in areas where the Chinese government believes it's needed, but it's not necessarily needed. And you can go on Google right now and look up Chinese ghost cities and see how many of these developments uh, are either underpopulated or not populated at all. Just big, giant, empty cities in China. There's about 50 of them right now. Um, And this is something that's been going on for a very long time. We're just now starting to see the... um, the symptoms of it uh and the bubble is now starting to pop yeah and as it pops evergrand of course was the big one now country garden on the verge of default pushes it off able to stay right stay the course right now but i think you're just delaying what's going to happen here and uh I, i think this property market is gonna go bust Similar to 2008 United States, but I don't think it has the same ripple effect throughout the global economy as the United States did back then in 2008. Yeah. When you have central planners that think that they're more intelligent than the free market, this is what happens. <laughs> there you go. There you go, man. Um, yeah. And so I, I am staying away from uh, China. I am not a bull in the China shop as Brandon coined that term a long time ago. Um, oh man, all that, all everything broke in that China shop. I'm glad I got out of it. <laughs> uh, I'm staying away just because of the worries of the real estate market. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think that keeps China away from Taiwan as well. So I think Taiwan Semiconductor is safe for right now. For now. Yeah. Yes. All right, Brandon. Unless they want to wag the dog and create a distraction, <laughs> it's possible. There you, there you go. Brandon, I got three articles here for you. Uh, one is probably going to have more conversation than the others, but uh, we got three articles here. Are you ready? Yeah, this is good. I can't count to four, so right up my <laughs> right? <laughs> three, Three is your max. That's, that's where you're just done. That's all I got. <laughs> all right, Brandon, here's the headline on this one. This one was on CNBC. Headline says... Fund manager who outperformed the S&P 500 since 1989. These are my best and worst stock picks. Are you ready to hear three of them? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I knew you would like this one. All right. So this is talking about legendary mutual fund manager, um, Joel Tillenhost. He has uh, been working with Fidelity and their low price stock since the launch in December of 1989. He has since then posted an annualized return of 13%. Uh, which is actually pretty good for a mutual fund over that length of period, you know. Um, 
I don't like the fact that it's been one fund manager, but uh, you know, because when he leaves, I don't know if that's going to continue. You know, that's yeah. always my concern with that. But however, he has done an excellent job with this one. So let's go over some of his wins. First one, I don't know if you're aware of this company or not, but it's ANSYS. ANSYS. Uh, basically, uh, it's a company that creates software that assists in product design and testing and is a prime example of what he calls a stock that he looks for. Tech stocks that aren't as prone to destruction was the quote from him. So in 2001, um, adjusted for splits, he bought it for less than $3 a share. As of market close on Friday, it's worth $319 per share. So a nice return on that one. Um, I it, To me, that would be kind of hard to find tech stocks that aren't prone to destruction. <laughs> yeah. Brandon, thoughts on that one? Yeah, there's there's few. There's a handful. There, So you, you believe there is a handful, too. Yeah. But finding well, that three bucks a share, too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it was probably not really three bucks a share. You said adjusted for split, so it was probably yes. higher than that at the time. But there you go. All right, next one you will know this one: Monster Beverage. Oh. Monster Beverage in two thousand one, adjusted for splits. Uh, it was four. He bought for four cents a share, but the actual it says the actual price on here four dollars a share is what he bought it for, but adjusted for splits four four cents a share. Um, it closed at $57 on Friday. So from four cents to 57, nice return for him. Um, at the here's what he has to say about Monster Beverage. I bought Monster Beverage at the time. Uh, they were Hanson's Natural and were a juice drink company because I like that they were uh, trying an energy drink. I like companies that try a lot of experiments. They may not always work, but they they tr they do try a lot of things, and I think Monster is very innovative in that way. Okay, so that's one that's that's one that I would have missed. I do kind of agree with him to a certain extent, but that's really tough for me because I really like companies that specialize in one or two things. Um, and and one of the things that brought me to General Electric a year and a half ago or whenever it was was the fact that they were cutting down on that and then splitting their companies off so that they could be more specific to their markets. Um, but yeah, I think you know there's there's different ways of skinning a cat, and clearly he's been successful. Uh, he was very beneficial uh, with this monster investment over Coke's investment into monster energy. And, you know, the uh, rumors swirling around that Coke might buy it out that was happening for, uh, you know, a couple of years. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's not a bad strategy. It's just different to my mindset. Right. So let's hear about one. He got, he did, he got wrong. So late 2002, Tillenhouse had a big bet on health South. It was a provider of outpatient surgery and rehab services. Uh, the low price stock held 30, uh, they, 36 million shares. Uh, he had a 9% stake in the company, and that was in late 2002. By early 2003, the company delisted from the New York Stock Exchange, and the stock fell by 99% over the time he held it. Uh, here's his uh, statements on this company and what he believed he got wrong. He says, I quote, I lost so much money on that, and it was because I was paying attention to adjusted earnings and not to the free cash flow, he says. Adjusted earnings, uh, it, oh, go, sorry, it, 
at the time, Health South's adjusted earnings looked like a value to Talon House, who was also uh, impressed with the firm's charismatic lead executive. So much he was willing to overlook the free cash flow, a metric which would have told a story of much less profitable company. Thoughts, Brandon? So yeah, you have to take everything into and in, into account. You can't just look at one thing and then say this is the reason why I'm buying it. You know, uh, different indicators and such have to be used together for them to be uh, successful. At the same time, this guy, um, you know, he's had some big winners that you just mentioned. You're going to have big losers too, but um, time in the market better than timing the market. We've talked about this a thousand times and time in the market for him has given him winners that have far outshined those losers, even if the losers were big time losers. So there you go. There you go. Yes. And I agree the takeaway, make sure you're looking at all uh, uh, the metrics you can of a company before and make an informed decision, basically is what I say. You know, don't just go off of just a PE ratio. You know, look at everything else. Yeah, if, and you're gonna you know, have you're gonna have losers. It's just you know those winners that you're holding on to. They're gonna outshine if you're doing it right. All right, moving on to the next article here. Uh, this one is uh, again off of Reuters. Uh, exclusive. Here's the here's the title. Exclusive. SoftBank's arm to ask for forty seven dollars to fifty one dollars per share in an IPO. So if you guys don't know what Arm Holding is, we reported on this recently. I was talking about the AI and how SoftBank was uh, putting in a lot of money just recently into Arm Holdings based on Arm moving into the AI field. Arm currently works in semiconductors and like smart, uh, a lot of smartphones are in, involved in that. Um, so SoftBank went ahead and acquired a 25% uh, 25% stake in the company that it did not already own because they owned... Uh, uh, some some a big stake in the company via its vision fund. Um, but when they went ahead and bought in, they bought in a $64 billion valuation. At this price that they're asking for for the IPO, that would value ARM between $50 and $54 billion valuation. So once again, it looks like uh, Masasoya Sun and SoftBank are losing money. Uh, Brandon. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, it's really tough as a bank that owns a portion of a company to, you know, be long-term winners on something or not winners, but losers on something. But I think in this case, they're actually going to pull it off. They're going to be losers on both ends. Uh, I don't know that they'll, in the AI bubble that we're in right now, they'll probably get that initially off of the uh, IPO and they'll make some good um, commissions off of being the bank of record for the IPO of ARM. But at the same time, they own 25% of it. And I don't expect that value to last for the next three to four years. Yeah, that's the question. Is it going to last? Because here, here I'm going to give you some more of this article here. Um, there, there's been a recent drop in demand for some of ARM's offerings. For the year ended March 31st, ARM sales fell to $2.6 billion. Um, It was hurt uh, mainly by global smartphone shipments is what they were talking about. But it also comes back uh, later on in the article by saying Arm, is, Arm has already signed up many of its major clients as investors in its IPO. Some of the here's a list. They list off some of these uh, clients. I'm going to list them off for you: Apple, Nvidia, Alphabet, AMD, Intel, Samsung, Cadence Design, and Synopsys. These are some of the names that they're listing off. I obviously believe that they're listing off these names as investors and as clients. 
to go ahead and boost the IPO is what I believe they're doing. Yeah. And oftentimes, so if you've got a company like Instacart's looking at an IPO right now, for example, um, and they'll go to like JP Morgan or something, JP Morgan may be the bank that handles the IPO and they'll make their money and they'll move on after the IPO happens. But SoftBank, unfortunately, owns 25% of this. So when all is said and done, SoftBank is also going to be a bag holder. Well, hold on. SoftBank owns more than 25%. They uh, recently bought the 25% stake that they did not already own. Oh, (laughs) They own pretty much over half this company. Oh, my God. This is SoftBank's baby. They really are looking for this to uh, jump up, but they bought it. And here's the problem. This is what I pointed out last time when I was talking about ARM. They bought it at such a high valuation price expecting the ai boom to blow up and that arm would make up in those cells but i and this is the point i pointed out last time are they behind the bubble on this or are they still have enough bubble left to grow that they're going to make some money that's the question who knows but it's at this point the valuation is just so ridiculous valuations are going through the roof i keep saying it's looking like there's going to be a couple Virgin Galactic companies out of all this mess um, is Arm one of them? I don't know. Um, I don't, I think the video is still going to be around, but um, I, I think we do need to have at some point. I don't know when we could have this bubble keep going for on for another year and a half, two years. Brandon, for all I know, yeah. I'm not a smart guy at timing these things, but eventually it's going to pop, and some of these companies are going to disappear. The video will still be here. A lot of these other companies will still be here, but. Uh, will they be here in the same shape or form? I, I don't know. Probably not. All right. All right. Last one here. And this has to do, I'm going to prep you by saying commodities. So get thinking commodity here. All right. Here's the headline. This is on Bloomberg business, Bloomberg.com on business section. Diamond prices are in a free fall in one corner of the market. De Beers has been forced to slash prices aggressively for one of its benchmark products. This uh, article is written by Thomas Bishevel. Um, it was uh, he's a Bloomberg writer. So De Beers, if you don't know who De Beers is, at one point in time they literally had a stranglehold of the diamond market around the world. Or it was very much just De Beers. Yeah, and there were gangsters uh, about it too. Yeah, like, little gangsters <laughs> like people died. Yeah, so I mean. De Beers, since then, they do have some competition, but it's still, they are still the the main the main individual, main company here. Um, so what is happening? There's a reason why people say blood diamonds. Yes. Yes, there is. Um, so what they're talking about here is they are talking about the uh, the rough diamonds as, as a plunge in free fall. And they say it's because Americans... And other countries are choosing engagement rings made from lab-grown stones instead. And so the rough diamonds, you know, it, it, they're not asking to, they're not asking the same price they were asking for before. The shift here, I'm going to read some of this article here. The shift doesn't mean engagement rings are about to go off the deep discount. The impact is li- limited to the rough diamond market, an opaque world of miners, merchants, and tradespeople that are several steps behind the price tags in a jewel in a jewelry store. So this is what Brandon was talking about. These are these are the miners themselves. They're going to be hit by this price. 
it's the scale and the speed of the pricing collapse is what's really affecting the diamond industry right now. Um, even De Beers, uh, the spokesperson for De Beers has even admitted, and I'll read this quote here, there has been a little bit of cannibalization that has happened. I don't think we should deny that. We see the real issue as a macroeconomic issue is what he is saying here. Let me give you some numbers of how this is affecting here. Um, they have cut prices in the category by more than 40% in the past year. That's a huge price cut, including one cut in just uh, 15% in just July alone. Let me give you an example. In June of 2022, De Beers was charging about $1,400 a carat for the select makeable diamonds, right? By July of this year, that price had dropped to $850 a carat. Um, so... Yeah, diamonds are still 10% more expensive than in the secondary market where traders and manufacturers sell amongst themselves. Um, however, this is showing that the lab-grown diamonds are making an impact into beer's pocketbook. What are your th thoughts on that? That margin is only 10%? No, uh, no. That's the case. I mean, that's what it is, their gross margin even. If yeah, he says uh, the diamonds are still 10% more expect uh, expensive than in secondary market, yes. Yeah. So, I mean... Uh, they're still just there. Yeah. It's uh, what do you, uh, the diamond market's in a free fall for rough diamonds that have not been cut yet, is what they're saying. These are diamonds uh -huh. that have not been cut or polished that you can cut and polish, and they are dropping in price. I've got a ring here that I bought for like 400 bucks or something like that um, with diamonds and black diamonds on. I have no idea if they're real, and I don't care. And I think that's kind of how most people are. They look real, right? So what does it matter? Right. So you feel that that's where the uh, American sentiment is going is yeah. like, look, if it looks, if it looks legit, you know, it's because they are going to look legit. They're lab grown. They're real. They're real technically diamonds. It's just, you know, they groom in the lab. So they're yeah. perfect. There's no, there's no uh, imperfections like a real diamond would have. For all I know, somebody in a lab dumped coal into a pressure cooker and <laughs> made these <laughs> I don't know if that's how that happened or not. This is a recent episode of It's Always Sunny with Mac from It's Always Sunny dumping coal into a pressure cooker, and he thinks he's so smart, and he's going to make diamonds out of it. Just kind of reminded me of that. If I owned any jewelry uh, stock prices, I would not be selling based off this news because what it sounds like, they're still making sales. They're just not making sales of real diamonds. <laughs> they're yeah, making sales true. of lab-grown yeah. diamonds. Yeah, so the the end businesses are still doing well. It's the middleman, De Beers, that is is filling the pinch here, and I don't believe they are listed anywhere. I believe it's still a private company. Am I incorrect on that? Let me uh, let me take one second here, pull it up before we uh, end the show here, and let's see if we can find De Beers. I think I would have had this done ahead of time, right? There's a Business Wars uh, podcast series on. I don't see it when I just checked my my quick one. I don't see them listed, so I don't think they are. Private company, I mean, come on. They had a they had a monopoly over the whole world global diamond market for years. So yeah. of course they're gonna be private. Um, uh, but yeah, they're they're hurting. Strange market, strange times, man. Who would have thought that people preferred the fake diamonds to the real ones? I you know what? It's part it's probably part of the trend right now of people trying to cut costs. You know. Well, here's my question too: Do the people receiving these gifts know that they're mainly fake now, or I don't do they think they're real? <laughs> <laughs> As a question, you got to ask yourself too, right? Uh, all right, 
Here we go. We reach the end of our show. Um, Brandon, final thoughts. Obviously, I'm still sticking to my 70% recession here. Um, but, you know, like I said, time in the market beats timing the market. So, I mean, if you've got yourself a good investment, there's no real good reason to sell if your timeline is 20 years out. Um, I'm still on Disney. You mentioned that the uh, the uh, fast money people or whatever on uh, CNBC called it a... Uh, a um, what they call it? They said it was a, a, a everybody was everybody was uh uh saying they would not buy Disney. I got out of my Disney. I sold my Disney. Everybody everybody was dogging Disney, calling it a dog with fleas. So here's the- it's that's a gecko saying from the first Wall Street. It's a dog with fleas. Yeah. So the reason they were doing that is because they've yet to make a deal with some cable company, and and they were taken off the air. ESPN and and the Disney channels and such like that are no longer available on that cable company. Uh, and their services for right now. This has happened multiple times over the years. The difference is right now is that Disney, quite honestly, has the leverage because cable is dying. And, you know, people make ESPN kind of their morning routine when they're getting ready, the people who watch ESPN. So the people who are watching ESPN don't have it anymore. They might just switch over to Hulu or to uh, YouTube TV. And I don't care which one they go to because I own Google stock too. <laughs> and Google is a great stock to own. Mm -hmm. all right cool my final thoughts is listen i have a lot of new investors that i tried to mentor and help out uh i even have some people that don't have a lot of money i've I've talked about the the lady i've been helping how she puts 20 bucks a paycheck away 20 bucks a paycheck and she's been buying google for a while right now and she does better lately because of google's run up she's been doing excellent She's been doing excellent, but it's a long-term investment for her, and she's built it, building up her money. Um, she never, she'll if you ask her, like, did you ever think you would have, you know, this amount of money in your in your account just sitting there in in cash and stock? Never in her life, game changing for her. Now maybe you're in the different group out there, and you have you could do a hundred bucks a paycheck, a thousand dollars, maybe at ten thousand dollars just sitting right there ready to invest. You know, I always say, you know, that it's very easy to outperform the S&P if you do a little bit of research, a little bit of research. You can outperform the S&P. You can have your money make money for you and work hard for you. And that's what you want, because if your money's not making money, you're going to work till you're dead. That's a quote from Warren Buffett. You got to have your money make money. So might as well uh, push it to the max and see the most you can get out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't have any calls this week, guys. I'm just really watching the markets, making my trades one one trade at a time, keeping my investments. I'm really hopeful that Apple is going to start to move back up. They have started to move back up, but they are still not at, at a good point. Um, I actually think now because of everything that Apple's doing and they are still sitting on that cash that uh, I might add to my position just for a long-term position. I think they're the more I look into them and research them, Brandon, the more I'm like, I might just add a long-term. Do I believe they're going to make a move, a large move anytime soon? No, I believe I'll probably break profitable here very quickly, but uh, I could hold on for a larger profit than just 1% for 2% right now. Um, so I'm thinking I might just hold on and ride the ups and downs over the next few years. Uh, other than that, that's all I got, man. That's all I got. Brandon, the Baron of Bonds has been, been happy to uh, have this conversation today. Yeah. All right, guys. 
as always, we've been uh, we hope we've been entertaining, educational, and uplifting because we want everyone to make money. Have a good night. Good night.